up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano, and today we are joined by my colleagues, Jennifer Gray and Carol Coolish, as we try and unpack the recent executive actions from the White House and what that might mean for tax legislation. Now, if you are a regular listener, you know that we've talked in the past about proposals from both the House and the Senate to provide further COVID relief legislation. And I believe at one point I even referred to the likelihood of another bill as an inevitability. Well, now, listen, that might still be true, but I think it's also fair to say that the executive actions taken by President Trump last weekend really throw sand in the gears of the process of enacting another COVID relief bill, at least in the short term. So let's just give you a reminder of what happened. On Saturday, August 8th, President Trump signed four executive actions related to the ongoing COVID event. These executive actions instructed the federal government to provide relief on student loans, unemployment benefits, in preventing certain evictions, and finally, the topic we are going to discuss today, a payroll tax deferral. Specifically, the executive memorandum issued by the White House instructs the Secretary of Treasury to defer withholding, deposit, and payment of the payroll tax for certain individuals from September 1st through December 31st. Now, look, there's been much ink spilled about whether and how that action would actually be effective or even implemented. We'll leave that topic for others to explore. But since this is the Catching Up on Capitol Hill podcast, let's look at the action through that lens. How does it change the legislative landscape? So, Carol, to answer the question of how this affects potential legislation, I think we have to first answer the question of whether these actions are actually real. I've had a lot of people ask me, wait, can they do that? Can you just outline for us where the White House claims to draw their authority uh, on this? All right. And, and two things. Um, first, just keep in mind that this particular one with regard to deferring payroll tax obligations, it's just a memo from uh, the president to the secretary of the Treasury um, asking the secretary of Treasury to do something. So it's not it in its own self is just setting the stage for the next step, which is to see what Treasury now issues. And what the, the memo to Treasury says um, is that the Secretary of Treasury is directed to use his authority pursuant to a, a certain code section to defer withholding deposit and payment of um, certain payroll taxes. And if you look at that code section, it's 7508 Cap A, that's basically a code section which effectively provides Treasury with the authority to postpone deadlines with respect to certain specified acts for taxpayers that are affected by federally declared disasters. So that's the authority that they're looking to. Um, President Trump is saying to his Secretary of Treasury, um, I would like you to use your authority pursuant to that code section um, to do certain certain things. And it goes on and, and in general provisions says that he also expects the memo to be implemented consistent with applicable law. So that's where the claim of authority is from, John. Okay. Well, that, that sounds pretty specific, but uh, like everything, there's always two sides to every question. So surely there must be arguments to the contrary, saying that maybe they don't have the authority. Are there good arguments? Well, you know, again, I'm going to say two things. One is, in part, we have to wait to see what guidance Treasury actually issues, and then look at whether that guidance falls within Treasury's statutory authority under the code section. So that's part of the answer, I think, is that given that we're still waiting to see what Treasury 
does pursuant to this directive, we have to wait and see. But I think the thing that, you know, a lot of people are talking about is the fact that prior to COVID, if we can think back to life before COVID, um, the code section that um, 7508 Cap A that I mentioned was used for postponing deadlines in the cases of things like hurricanes and floods. And those were things that were of limited duration and um, limited geographic scope. And you you could figure out who the taxpayers were who were directly adversely affected by the natural disaster. Here, Trump issued back on March 13th, so we're already talking five months ago, five months ago, he issued his determination under the the Stafford Act that an emergency existed across the entire nation. And that declaration is still in effect, um, and I suspect it will be in effect for a while. So it's a very different situation than the disaster itself is very different than past kind of disasters for which the Stafford determinations have been made in that um, it's sort of opening the door to this incredible scope of, um, you know, as I said, it's already going on for five months, could go on for many more months. Um, affecting people across the country, across the nation. Um, I know some people have suggested that not every taxpayer who might um, be um, benefit from some of the postponements arguably may be directly affected. But yet there's also the, the, the argument that everybody across the world right now is directly affected. But we sort of we have a, a the kind of emergency that um, was probably not what people were thinking about when they um, enacted 7508A. It's hard to know. Um, at that point, we hadn't had a pandemic since 1918. So um, it's just a very different kind of disaster that we're talking about and as a, a, a much broader use of a Stafford Act determination because of the breadth of the disaster. I mean, the word unprecedented is one of those words that, you know, I think people are getting a little sick of in the context of COVID. Everything's unprecedented, but I guess this is an unprecedented application of of that particular code provision because we haven't had uh, a a national or global um, crisis like this before. So we're kind of charting new territory here in in, in its use. Okay, well, Jennifer, now your turn. Now that Carol has explained to us, you know, what the White House did and how they did it, here's the next question. Why? Why? Why do you think they push these particular executive actions, especially the one on, on, on the payroll um, tax provision, and, and why now? Honestly, I think because Trump wanted to. Um, he has been pretty vocal for quite a while now about wanting to have some sort of a payroll tax uh, deferral and or forgiveness. So I think this allowed him an opportunity to do that. There was not much support for that idea on Capitol Hill or honestly, uh, perhaps even within the administration. So I think, um, you know, it's good to be the most powerful man in the world. So uh, beyond that, I think, uh, you know, the CARES 2 negotiations were stalling, as we've talked about. So, I mean, maybe this was a way to try to do something, especially to uh, maybe attack some of those other issues that were very pressing, like the UI and the evictions issue. Um, And perhaps maybe this is a way to put some pressure on those negotiations, either to put pressure on the Democrats uh, to maybe come to the table and compromise more and or to put pressure on Congress as a whole to, um, you know, reclaim their authority uh, back from the executive. 
Somehow, I, I believe everything you said up until that last point. Do you really think that the White House wants to encourage Congress to take their authority back away from the executive? That would be the first, uh, you know, White House in a very long time to feel that way. But I, I understand your point. Good and point. It's a very good one. All right, so let's go back to this big question. And, you know, what, what we do, uh, what do we think that these actions mean about this idea, you know, the prospects for further COVID legislation? So, Jennifer, back to you. Can you answer that question? Let's think about it both short-term and long-term. So, Jennifer, I'll ask you short-term. What do you think th these actions mean for the prospects for enacting additional COVID legislation in the short-term? And by that, I mean really August, because, you know, once a long time ago, and by long time ago, I mean like two weeks ago, we thought that the end of July was a, was a real deadline because of the expiration of unemployment insurance. So just answer that question in terms of do we think this does anything for the prospects of a congressional deal in August? I'm not sure it's clear. I would say on the whole it may push against the idea of having a short-term deal. Uh, for one, the House and the Senate members have all gone back to their home districts and um, their states with the expectation that their leadership can call them back with 24 hours notice for a vote if a deal would arrive. But uh, they're not here right now. And I think it just maybe bought some time as a whole as folks try to sift through what these executive actions means and, and figure out what the impact of them are. I mean, I think that's right. I, you know, we were hearing so much about a rush to a deal, rushing to a deal, and then suddenly that's kind of gone quiet. It doesn't mean that staff isn't working, continuing to work behind the scenes, but at least, you know, publicly pushing hard for a deal between the House and the Senate um, doesn't seem to be happening right now. And, you know, maybe the flip side of all this is um, this was a way to get them, as you were, you know, suggesting before, to get them to come back together just because Congress will still want to have the pen and not let have the White House have the pen. But it seems like things have gone quiet for now. So, well, and it's, I, I think it's it's hard to tell because folks don't really have a sense of to what extent some of these executive actions, particularly uh, of the UI and the evictions, to what extent they may or may not be able to actually be impactful. That's right. Like as I said at the outset, there's a lot of people debating whether or not these things actually work anyway, and it may take some time for us to come to that determination. Yep. All right. Well, Carol, that was the short term, you know, the, the next month or so. Uh, let's think now a little longer term then. What do you think as we go beyond August and into September and, you know, into the fall, what are the prospects for um, COVID legislation later? Because historically in an election year, once Congress leaves in August, they don't often come back to do meaningful legislation until after the election. What, what do you think the case is this year? Well, they've got to come back to deal with a number of things, um, number of pressing things in September anyway. Um, and I also think, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but I also do think that this COVID is, is, as we know, is not a static situation, nor are the economic repercussions. So there could be developments any day that could change the sort of the dynamic and could put more or less pressure on people to reach a deal. So there is the sort of the, the effect you have to just sort of watch how things unfold to see where there's pressure on whom there's pressure, who's got leverage, all that kind of fun stuff. But going to what you were saying, John, yeah, in September, they've, they've got stuff they've got to come back for. Um, I would say probably the, the, the most significant thing is none of the appropriations bills that would fund the government for the upcoming fiscal year has been enacted yet. As a matter of fact, they're not 
terribly far along the path of reaching any kind of agreement on individual bills between the House and the Senate. So the next fiscal year begins October 1. So they need to have some sort of deal with regard to spending appropriations by the end of September. And right now there are so many different policy issues that Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate have different views on that um, different people want to attach different policy writers to the appropriations bills that it would be very difficult to come to a bipartisan, bicameral consensus and then get the administration to buy in. So I think what most people think is the process ultimately is going to play out to a kick the can down the road scenario or a continuing resolution where the um, the House, the Senate and the White House agree at some point before September 30th to just continue existing funding levels um, for a period of time so that there's not a partial or complete government shutdown come October 1, which, um, you know, going into the elections, I'm not sure either party would view that as a particularly positive development. But that's that's where a lot of the action is going to be, is this continuing working on the, the spending type bill. Um, they also do have to deal with the um, expenditure of authority to spend out of the Highway Trust Fund. That expires at the end of September. So there are things they need to come back and deal with. And I think, as I said, depend, there's going to be pressure from various constituencies for there to be action on COVID. There's also going to be some members who may well view there as not being a reason to take more action. But there's going to be all kinds of pressures on them either supporting or, you know, pulling, pushing at different people different ways. And I think that some people continue to push for additional fiscal stimulus, um, and they'll be talking about that at the same time as they're trying to figure out government funding. And I would say that there's also a possibility for yet another bite at the apple after the elections, if they just, especially if they just push continuing resolution until some point after the elections before the next year. We've also got some expired some tax provisions that are expiring at the end of the year. Plus, again, you have to watch what's happening with COVID and see how that affects pressures and views of individual members. So I think that we, unlike other election years, um, given the nature of this particular situation with COVID, um, how dynamic it is, how long-lasting it is, all the different repercussions it has, I do think that um, that combined with the fact that they haven't yet gotten to the uh, finish the appropriations process have reason to be back Um um, working in September. So almost certainly, no matter what, we're going to see Congress uh, back in Washington, um, probably working on some of these things you mentioned. And as history tells us, whenever those things go on, the chances of other items uh, getting in there uh, is pretty significant. In fact, you know, seems like more often than not when you get these big year end deals that other things find their way. in. so even if we don't get another COVID bill in August. Certainly there's a chance to get that uh, in September as well. It's a, it's a very valid point. I think that it's easy to lose sight of um, because people are already now sort of turning their eyes to the election as the next big thing. But we've got this other thing before the next big thing. Well, you know, sort of last thought in this, uh, you know, obviously this tug of war between the executive branch and the legislative branch has been going on really since the beginning. I mean, the founders obviously had a separation of powers for a reason to try and have these co-equal branches of government. Uh, and many would argue that really at the outset, there was a belief that the legislative branch would really be the dominant of those branches of government. But I think it's safe to say that over the last really 
almost 100 years now. The executive branch has been winning that tug of war. And this is probably just another example to remind us that the executive branch is, is really winning in that tug of war in terms of asserting its authority uh, between Congress and the executive branch. Well, with that thought, I will leave you for this week. We appreciate you joining us. And until next time, thanks for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Thank you.